May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, six weeks between Christmas and the start of Lent, the church uh, observes the season of Epiphany. And the theme is neither celebratory like Christmas or severe like Lent. The theme of Epiphany is unveiling. Truths that were once obscure are made plain. Presence that was once restricted is now wide open. And what we're doing here at Church of the Cross is just taking the gospel texts as they're appointed in the lectionary and working through them during these six weeks. And the the very simple thing that I want to do today is explore one phrase that was used, as a matter of fact, last week in the story of Jesus' baptism and is repeated in the gospel text for this Sunday. Remember last week, if you didn't catch the service, Jesus is baptized, and when he comes up out of the water, it says that he saw heaven torn open. And today, Jesus says to Nathaniel, you will see heaven open. Now, I want you to imagine, well, I don't really want you to imagine. I am I'm turning my essay into my teacher, and I have a very clear thesis statement. The thing I want to say today is that heaven has been opened for those who have been humbled. Heaven has been opened for those who have been humbled. All I'm going to do is break that sentence down in two parts. Part one, heaven has been opened. In order to make sense of what happens in John 1, we actually have to go back, way back, to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 28 in the story of Jacob. You got Abraham, you got Isaac, And you got Jacob. And when we meet Jacob in Genesis 28, he is at a very, very, very low point in his life. As a matter of fact, he is fleeing through the hill country, running for his life. Why? Because Jacob was uh, not a perfect person, let's say. Jacob sneaked and lied and manipulated his way into stealing his brother Esau's inheritance. How do you think Esau felt about that? Esau was not happy with brother Jacob. So he was chasing him, trying to kill him. So Jacob had to say goodbye to his family and friends, his home, his inheritance, seemingly never to return. He's running through the wilderness. That's where Jacob is in Genesis 28. And the Bible uses this very colorful phrase to describe just how uh, difficult of a situation he was in. It says, uh, Jacob was using a stone for a pillow. He was living in a van down by the river. It's the message translation. Just kidding. Um, But that is where Jacob was. Uh, And in that spot, taking a rock for a pillow, Jacob falls to sleep and he has a vision. Some of you might know uh, this story as the story of Jacob's ladder. And that's fine. I'll refer to it as Jacob's ladder throughout the sermon. But uh, in the NIV translation, for example, and lots of other Bible translations, they don't use the word ladder. They use a word like staircase. And that is because if you've ever been on a ladder, you know, it's like it feels a little unsafe, kind of rickety. And you would never be in a situation, right, where there would be multiple people on one single ladder. That sounds terrifying. And the word that is used in this book, commentators point out, it's not the word that typically gets used for ladder. It's a word that you might translate as causeway. It's a word that uh, is used to describe this apparatus that armies would utilize when they wanted to cross a large body of water. 
So Jacob's Ladder, don't think of like an old wooden ladder. Think of the flyovers that we drive on when we're merging onto freeways around Austin. This massive structure that can have multiple vehicles or people on it at the same time. And it is a martial term. It's a term used in war. And as is fitting, Jacob doesn't just see this martial flyover in the sky. He sees an army. An army of what? An army of angels. This might not be necessary, but just in case, in your mind's eye, when you hear the word angel, you see a fair-skinned brunette with a beautiful Irish accent. Let me set the record straight. Angels are heralds of God. They are emissaries of God. They are representatives of God's majesty and might. Angels are the soldiers in the Lord's army. So Jacob sees a causeway, a staircase in the sky with an army of angels going up and going down. And at the top of the stairway, there is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord of hosts and the hosts of heaven are coming down to earth. That's what Jacob sees. And what that vision represents is what I just said, God doing business on earth. But more than that, the almighty God doing business in Jacob's life. It's this, uh, people use the fancy term theophany, this unveiling of God's glory and the weight of God's presence. And now the Bible, throughout the Bible, there are a series of case studies of what happens to human beings when they're able to see these kinds of things. And it is not pretty. Have you ever been on a roller coaster? And you know, right when it drops, they sometimes take a photo where your body is instinctually convinced you're hurtling towards your death. And the photos are funny because you look terrified, right? Well, that's not actually a bad picture of what happens to human beings when they see angels. What do the angels say? Fear not. Why? Because people are terrified. They're convinced they're going to die. So the angel's like, hey, pick yourself up off the ground. You're all right. It's terrifying. And it is even worse. It is even more dreadful when a human being encounters God. Now, why is that? You might think, gosh, that makes God seem kind of mean. It's not that. Just think about it like this. I, I have a really good friend from college who one time, he was at an airport. You know those moving sidewalks? At the, remember, we used to go to airports, those moving sidewalks. And he happened to just be behind a very famous linebacker from the Baltimore Ravens. And my friend, you know, looks like me. He's a normal-sized adult. He said, I never felt shorter, punier, more insignificant than when I was behind this linebacker from the Baltimore Ravens. That makes sense. I, I remember, this is a little funny, but I was uh, watching that Bill Gates documentary that was very popular about a year ago on Netflix. And I remember thinking, man, I am a moron. <laughs> you know, when you see someone's brain just work so fast, you think, oh, well, I am very, very normal. Well, imagine being in the presence of infinite power and strength, you would be so aware of your own finitude and, and weakness. Imagine being in the power of infinite beauty and purity. The apprehension of your own flaws would be traumatic. And that is what happens in the Bible when human beings see God. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six, he sees the Lord high and lifted up and he's not like, wow, I'm strangely warmed. No, he's undone. Woe is me, he says. There, there's a trauma. But, all of that goes to say, but in Genesis 28, Jacob sees this ladder, an army of angels, and he doesn't tremble. He's not undone. And God promises to bless him 
And Jacob is still this, as I said earlier, self-seeking, manipulative, not a very nice person. And he's not repented yet. So how could heaven be opened for Jacob? How could God bring his power and his glory into Jacob's life and Jacob not have this uh, you know, dreadful experience? That question, I want to say, went unanswered for centuries until this story of Jesus and Nathanael. First, Jesus finds Philip. Follow me, Jesus says. And Philip says, absolutely, but first I gotta tell my brother Nathaniel about this. Nathaniel, we have found the promised savior. You're never gonna believe it. It's this guy, Jesus from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel has his doubts, which we'll get to in a minute, uh, but he follows. And when Jesus meets Nathaniel, Jesus says, oh, Nathaniel, I know you. And Nathaniel says, huh, I don't know if we've met. Well, we haven't technically met, but I saw you under the fig tree. I know you. And Nathaniel confesses, wow, how could you, how could anyone? You are the Lord. You are the king of Israel. His doubts melt away. And I like to imagine Jesus, this is not in the Bible, but I like to imagine Jesus chuckling to himself. Oh, you think that was cool? You're never going to guess what I'm going to show you. You're going to see angels ascending and descending. You're going to see heaven open and you are going to see all of that stuff take place in me. Now, friends, we read over that sentence and we don't stop and pause. Let me tell you, that is as mic droppy of a moment as there is. That is one of the most grandiose, brazen, remarkable statements any human being has ever made. Heaven opens, angels ascend and descend on me, Jesus says. Why is that so remarkable? Well, think about what Jesus could have said. Jesus could have said, Nathaniel, I am going to show you the thin place where heaven meets earth and angels roam. I'm going to show you heaven's gate. That would be incredible, right? And that would be Jesus as one of the world's greatest prophets. But Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus could have said, Nathaniel, I will teach you how to climb the ladder. I will show you how to get out of the cave. I will lead you to truth. That would be amazing. A lot of people don't even believe in truth. That would be amazing. Jesus would be one of the world's great teachers. But Jesus is not a teacher. Well, he's, he's not just a teacher. Jesus says, I will not show you the way. I will not speak to you the truth. I will not point you towards life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And therefore, heaven and earth, angels ascending and descending, that takes place in me. I am the focal point. I am the door. I am the gate. I am the ladder. God's glory and power flows into our planet earth through me. It is a remarkable statement that only someone who is deceived or is insane would say, or it's true. Jesus is saying, I am those things. It is me and myself. And therefore, I think we have an answer to this big question. How is heaven opened for us? How do people like Jacob, who are making a mess out of their lives, lay claim to God's power, God's glory, God's goodness. Well, the Christian faith says it has everything to do with Jesus. 
God became a human being in Jesus, and Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and Jesus died the death that we should have died, and Jesus, as a human being, sits at the right hand of God, filled with God's glory and God's power and life. And therefore, if you want an open heaven, if you want access to infinite beauty and joy and righteousness, all you have to do is believe in him lay claim to him. And the promise of the gospel is that by believing in him, you possess all that he is. Jesus is the justice of God incarnate. Jesus is the laughter and the joy and the kindness of heaven made flesh. By believing in him and laying hold of him, God's power and life flows into us. Heaven is opened for all the Jacobs out there. It just takes believing and grasping the promise of the Son. We live, brothers and sisters, under an open heaven. That is point one. Point two, not for everyone. Remember what I said at the outset, my thesis to my imaginary, to Professor Andrew Del Rio. Heaven has been opened, but it's been opened for the humble. That's the second thing this text teaches us. And the text is so insistent on this point, I believe, that it shows Nathaniel being humbled at two different points. First, we might say his prejudice. Where is Jesus from? Nazareth? Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Now look, we all have places that we either mildly or strongly disdain. Am I right? We have people, we have places, we have news channels. We all have people and places and things that we do not like. And in polite company, we don't admit it. Increasingly, we do admit it. But (laughs) that's another sermon. Okay, so what was it about Nazareth that so evoked, uh, we might say, Nathaniel's snobbiness? I've heard uh, Nazareth described by a preacher as as dueling banjo country. (laughs) It was the hillbillies, right? It was a place where people read the wrong newspapers if they'd read it all. It was a place where people did not wear masks. You know what I'm saying? It was a place. It was the backwater. What good comes from a place like that? And I just want to be clear about this. The Bible is not, it's not, for some people, Nazareth is the Republic of Austin, right? The point is not conservative, liberal, or traditional, progressive. No, because then it's like God is on our side. That is not the point the Bible is making. The point the Bible is making is that God comes from places and people we do not expect. And whatever your do not expect is, expect God from there. And when God took on human flesh in Jesus, he came from a backwater place. What's more than that, he came from a poor family in that backwater place. Remember, you know this, there's a very very famous song about it. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus came to the temple, his parents brought him there, he was a child, and his parents offered two turtle doves. What's significant about that? Well, two turtle doves in the law of Moses was the offering required only from the poorest of the poor. So Jesus is coming from this backwater place and from an extremely poor family in that backwater place. So contrary to what Nathaniel thinks, contrary to, I think, the way much of our world, much of our own hearts operate, the glory and the goodness and the beauty of God is not found in boutique hotels. It's found in mangers and backwater places. And the power and majesty and strength of God does not come from the throne. It comes from the cross. And God 
comes into your life. Not when you are at your best, but when you have taken a stone for a pillow. That, I've heard this called the Nazareth principle. And it's really wise. God is in places that we do not expect, both out there and in here. There is a, um, if you, uh, one of the editions of the Book of Common Prayer on page 78, there are a list of random passages that you can pick and read out loud as a way to start the service of morning prayer. Some of you know morning prayer. I, I remember very, very vividly being a, an earnest convert to Anglicanism about 15 years ago and trying to figure out how to do morning prayer by myself. And there's one of these verses that you can pick. It's on page 78 that perfectly summarizes what I'm trying to say. It's Isaiah 57, verse 15. Uh, I'll read it for you. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with the one who has a contrite and humble spirit. Do you see that? Do you hear that? There are two places where God's power are found the highest of heaven and the humblest of heart. God's exaltation and our humiliation. And friends, if there is one epiphany, one moment of insight that I would seek to impress upon you, it is this idea that God is so present and God longs to be present in our lives in the places we least expect God to be. God's salvation, excuse me, our salvation was achieved by humbling. And we therefore receive that same salvation through humbling. What do I mean? Salvation was achieved through humbling. Well, God came to our planet, the Lord of the universe, and he began his life on earth as a single cell. And that single cell became not a full-grown person, able to speak in complete sentences, a baby a wiggly nursing, my swaddling clothes needs to be changed because I'm not potty trained. Baby, the Lord of the universe with messy diapers, humbled. And that baby became a man who was not, not a financier or a captain of industry. He was a wandering preacher with nowhere to lay his head. Humbling. And that Lord of the universe died outside the city gates next to two criminals. The voice that spoke creation into existence expired with a cry of powerlessness. That is humbled, humbled. And that humility, that humility gave rise to the greatest power we have ever seen, right? What is one thing that, the, I don't know, who's the president of China? The president of China, Vladimir Putin, Jeff Bezos, name the most powerful people on earth you can imagine. None of them have nothing in their arsenal that can stop death. Death has power over every single one of them. And that Lord of the universe who began his life as a cell and then a baby and then a wandering preacher and then a common criminal, that man holds the keys of death in his hand. That humility gave him power that no one on earth possesses. He achieved that power through humbling and we receive that power the same way, through humbling. Let me pause here. You know, when I, when I first began to try and wrap my, rind, wrap my mind around this counterintuitive idea that, you know, we receive God's strength in our weakness, right? 
I used to think, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I used to think, huh, well, I should maybe like seek out opportunities to be brought low in order for God to raise me up. Does that make, I know that's dumb, but I, I quite honestly thought like that. And then a very wise, loving pastor said, Nick, you're acting like an idiot. God is infinitely wise and God is sovereign and God uses the stuff that life throws at you. Disappointments, anger, losses, resentment, bad habits, ways in which we just are in touch with the finitude of life break things, when things break down. And look, those things are not good. We don't glorify those things and we do not seek those things out. And left, left to themselves, those things harden us and constrict us. They're not good. But in the grace of God, those things can be openings for God's glory and power. So Nathaniel was locked in this, I don't know if it was racialized, but it was prejudice, Right? And he looked down on this, this backwards area and God used that place of sin as an opening for his salvation. And the same, you know, same with us. We have areas in our life, you know, disjointed areas and God in his mercy can use that as ways of laying claim to our hearts. So I want to very explicitly encourage you, not just, you know, sin, that's, that's good, but also places of, of disappointment and grief and loss, places where God seems the most far away, oftentimes that is where God is. God's waiting there for you, and God will use that as, as a Jacob's ladder. We see this very specifically in Nathaniel's life, the second way he's humbled, and it's in this idea of the fig tree. Remember, Lord, I don't know you. Yeah, you don't, but I know you, Nathaniel, and I saw you under the fig tree. Now, to be clear, we have no idea what happened under that fig tree. But what we do know is that what happened there was very private and seemingly very significant because when Jesus spoke to Nathaniel, I saw you there, Nathaniel, who was this self-righteous skeptic, became an earnest acolyte. You are the king of Israel. Um, again, we don't know what this victory was, but St. Augustine, the great teacher of the Christian faith, kind of reflecting on this verse, wondered if perhaps something about the fig tree is in relation to sin. Because when Adam and Eve ate the fruit and their nakedness was revealed to them as a source of shame, what did they seek to cover themselves and hide from their own bodies? Fig trees or leaves from fig trees. So Augustine wonders, maybe, well, let me put it this way. Nathaniel realized two things in that encounter with Jesus. First, he knew his sin was not hidden from the Lord. And what we pray at the beginning of the service, all hearts are open, all desires known, from you no secrets are hid. Nathaniel realized that God saw him in every way. But then Nathaniel looked into the eyes of Jesus and he saw not anger, but compassion, not fury, but grace. And so Nathaniel realized in that moment, I am more broken and sinful than I imagined, but I am more loved and embraced by God than I could have ever dared to hope. And that is Jacob's ladder. That is the gate of heaven. In Pauline terms, that is new creation. When we get that, heaven is truly open for us. And even the really painful and really difficult things that life throws at us 
can be occasions of strengthening and enlargement and joy. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you speak to us new, anew through it. And I pray for any of us here who readily identify with either and or Jacob or Nathaniel. Maybe, Lord, we're running. We're running through the wilderness. We're in despair. We're sad. We're angry. We're frustrated. And we're running. Or maybe we're Nathaniel. We're stuck in self-righteous perspectives. And we even realize they're wrong, but we can't expel them from our bodies. Or we're, we're acutely aware of our sin, but we're not as acutely aware of your grace. Lord, wherever we are today, I pray that your words to us, heaven is open, would sink into our hearts, would resonate in our hearts, and that you, Holy Spirit, would help us believe and lay hold of the wonderful promises made to us in Jesus. Amen.